0: your regularly scheduled program for a special announcement. The United States is headed for an entitlement crisis. Social Security and Medicare are going broke. You are going to have to pay the bill. You are going to have to pay the bill. bill. Welcome to the Debt Dialogues, where you'll learn about the coming entitlement crisis, how it affects you, and what you can do about it. Debt Here's your host, Ayn Rand Institute Fellow, Don Watkins. You're on Brooke. Is the executive director of the Ayn Rand institute a columnist at forbes.com an internationally sought after speaker a regular guest on tv and radio and co-author along with wouldn't you know it me of the national bestseller free market revolution how Ayn Rand's ideas can end big government now our goal in this podcast is to educate people about the ruinous effects of the welfare state but it's not enough to know what's wrong with today's system it's vital to have a positive alternative, which for my money is laissez-faire capitalism. Well, Iran is frankly a walking encyclopedia of capitalism, so I thought we would talk about what capitalism is, why it's moral. So let's dive right in. Iran, what is capitalism and why is it moral?
1: So capitalism is the social, political, economic system, really a freedom. Uh, it's, it's the system that basically removes government coercion and individual coercion from human interaction. So the only role of government in capitalism is to protect individual rights, to protect the right of individuals to act in their own rational self-interest, to leave them free, to act as, as they see fit in pursuit of their own values. Now, it's a system, therefore, which uh, we're all property, it's really a system of private property. So we're all property, it's private. The government, the government is not involved in private transactions out there. So, you know, capitalism is really the system of freedom. It's it's leaving people, individuals, free to pursue their own rational values. Well, let me play devil's advocate
0: with that. Sure. Isn't that what we've had for the past thirty years? And isn't <laughs> that what led to basically? I mean, the fact is, we have a lot of poverty. We have a lot of in- inequality. I mean, I don't. Well, let's take these one by one. First of all, is
1: this the system we've had in the last 30 yeah, so, years? Yeah, So I think the point that's really important to get and, and that Ayn Rand makes in, in her, in her uh, book of essays called Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal, is that it's an unknown ideal in, in the sense that not only haven't we had it in the last 30 years, we've really never had it. So even when you look back at the 19th century America in the beginning, uh, you know, at the beginning where, where people took the Declaration and the Constitution really seriously, the, even there there was the beginning of government intervention, government control, government coercion into the lives of individuals and into businesses. So even early on, there were regulations over banks and over the first canals and there, there were attempted regulations of steamboats and suddenly significant regulation of railroads. So throughout the 19th century even, there were regulations of aspects of business. Now, that period was also the freest we've ever had. So it's the closest we've ever gotten to laissez-faire capitalism, to a system of complete private property. But it wasn't perfect. We didn't quite make it all the way. There were flaws right from the beginning of the founding of this country. The last 30 years... The idea of this, the last 30 years being capitalism, is absolutely absurd. Um, when you think about the tens of thousands of pages of regulations, not just at the federal level, at the state level, at the local level, at the city level, everywhere from zoning to, to regulations that dictate y- whether you can chop a tree off your home, to regulations of what uh, drugs, medical and medical and non-medical drugs you can use and not use, uh, to you know california you need a license to shampoo hair uh, you need a license to do almost anything in in so many states banks you know people talk about the financial crisis as a crisis of um, unregulated banking i mean that is the most absurd statement ever banks have every bank in the united states in 2007 was regulated by at least five different regulatory agencies today it's seven because they've added a couple right because there was They claim not enough regulations. So massive amounts of regulations. It's not a product a bank could introduce without getting regulatory approval. J.P. Morgan today has, at least the last time I looked, my my guess is that it's a much larger number right now. But a few couple of years ago, 129 government regulators go to work at the J.P. Morgan offices. That's not capitalism. That's not private property. Um, So... There's not a sem- the, the, the remnants of capitalism here and there, right so yeah, you can still kind of own your own house even though even there try not paying property taxes sometime and then the question is who really owns your house or, or are you just renting it from the government and and the property taxes is your annual rent uh, y- in high tech you'd, you you could argue that I don't know seventy eighty percent of what they do is left free but then what about Apple right now, which has a Court-appointed government bureaucrat monitoring everything they do at iTunes. And actually, he's just expanded his – he's looking at everything Apple does. So the government is in Apple monitoring every decision they make. That's not capitalism. That's not free markets. In the most unregulated segment of the economy, mortgages is heavily subsidized, heavily regulated, controlled. Farming, $300 billion at least spent on subsidies and Controls and regulations and, you know, uh, every aspect of it is controlled by government. Uh, 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 Price guarantees, insurance subsidization, everything. So there is really no segment of the U.S. economy today that I would call capitalist. There is some semblance of freedom and a lot and ever-growing government control and government intervention in what we do. And it's getting worse and it's been getting worse since the founding of the country But in particular, over the last 100 years, it's gotten a lot worse. Okay. So if we say that capitalism, what we're really talking about is the government
0: not using force against people, leaving them free, and then they can go try to make a life for themselves, using making their own choices, earning property through their own productive work. So the question is, why do you think that's the moral system?
1: Well, let me just add to what you just said. Um, So – you know capitalism, all that. So what we have today is this mixed a mixture, right? We have some freedoms in some areas, but even those are getting more and more constrained. And we've got statism. We've got government control over over massive amounts of our lives and over a, a significant portion of the decisions that we make. And and let's differentiate between coercion and and what the rule of law really is, which I think is important because regulations. Uh, When I talk about regulations, I'm not talking about laws that protect us from fraud, right? Fraud is an act that the government should be protecting us from. That is the proper role of government under capitalism is to protect us from crooks like Bernie Madoff and to protect us from from fraudsters. But those kind of laws are pretty simple. They've always kind of been on the books. Yeah, you have to to refine them every few years because of new innovations. How do you apply fraud to the Internet? How do you apply fraud here? But basically murder— theft, fraud, are pretty, we know what those are, and, and they need to be changed a little bit, but they're basically standard. The regulations are typically preemptive. They, they are controlling property rights. They're not protecting property rights, which was what laws against fraud are, but they're trying to control our behavior. They're trying to limit our choices, and they're intervening in an area where no violation of rights is occurring, where we're transacting Freely, voluntarily in the government say, no, no, we don't like how much sugar you have in that drink, so we're going to tell you you can't serve that much sugar or trans fats or whatever it is, the latest fad is. So regulations are, are fundamentally different. They, regulations violate rights. The rule of law is there to protect rights. So uh, the government courses, regulations are a are, are fundamentally of Try not abiding by the regulations. There are a lot of people don't quite get what coercion is. Uh, coercion is force, physical force, right? If you don't do what the government says, they come, they take you, they put you in jail. That's what coercion really means. That's what force really is. And sometimes rarely is it appropriate to put you in jail. That's when you commit fraud, so you initiated force. What the statists do is they initiate force on you even though you're innocent. You haven't done anything to anybody in terms of violating rights. So that distinction, I think, is important for people, and people get very confused about what force is. Um, and so we have a mixed economy in which, in which a bigger and bigger portion of economic life is a statist. It's run by government where, government where we are losing our rights, primarily our property rights. We're losing our ability to make choices for ourselves. The government is dictating those choices. Now why is making choices? For one, why is being left alone to make choices for oneself? moral, which is what capitalism is, the system that leaves you alone to make choices? It's because the standard of morality is your own life, is uh, your own successful life, your own prosperous, flourishing, ultimately happy life. It's about pursuing those values that will make your life. Successful. Uh, those objective values that are good for you. Now, only you can make choices about this particulars about you know your own life, what's good for you. Uh, and other people, you know, I as soon as they impose choices on you, they're limiting what you can and cannot do. They're limiting your ability to pursue your happiness. Now, sometimes you're going to make mistakes. I mean, the go- and the government often often justifies its intervention in saying, well, we just want to make you happy. We just want to help you. But by doing that, they're destroying your capacity to learn from when you're not successful. They're destroying your capacity to actually choose, to actually make educated choices about your values in the context of your knowledge. They don't have the context of your knowledge. They don't have... The, the, the spectrum of choices you have. And they, you know, fundamentally morality, we believe, is, is about being rational. Nobody can be rational for you. <laughs> you have to be rational. It, it, it's your commitment, when, as soon as somebody else is making a choice for you, it's in a sense, whatever you do is outside of the realm of morality because you didn't actually engage in making that choice. So what, what statism does, it destroys our capacity to think, to choose to pursue rational values by limiting those choices and controlling those choices and, and, and limiting our capacity to be rational, to think rationally about the world around us. So capitalism is moral because it's the only system that leaves us free to pursue our rational values, to pursue our happiness. And to pursue it based on what we believe, rationally believe, is really good for us. Now, again, there's no guarantee of being right, but it's still the only moral uh, option here is making choices for yourself. And, and statism destroys that. So it, it, it destroys the individual's ability to pursue their own happiness.
0: Well, but the, the, a lot of people would say, how can you say this system is moral where it's leaving people totally without help? and in particularly people born without a, in, in places without a lot of money, without a good education. Presumably, you'd say if you're taking money from some people and giving it to others, which is what the welfare state does, that's a violation of property rights. That's immoral. But then how can you live, call a society in which there's these people going without help
1: a moral society? Well, I think that we're making a number of fallacies, or people make a number of fallacies when they do this. What does it mean to have a society with – how many people in a truly free society need help? So y- you have to start with that. The uh, capitalism is the society most conducive to human flourishing, to human prosperity, to human success, to human achievement. Uh, capitalism, in its history, to the extent that it is tried, produces more jobs than there are people. That's why you get massive immigrations into countries that are relatively capitalist. Because lots of jobs are being created. Jobs that allow people not only to make a living, but to earn the self-esteem that comes from making a living for yourself. And therefore to attain happiness that comes from the pride that, that, that is generated from being successful in life. So. Capitalism is not just an engine of prosperity. Capitalism is an engine of self-esteem, an engine of happiness, and this is true for almost everybody. I mean literally almost everybody. There's very, very, very few people in in a truly free country that can't take care of themselves. They can't find a job. They can't prosper. They can't succeed. They can't flourish, and what we're doing when we restrain capitalism, what we do when we limit those choices, when we limit uh, the free market, is we limit the number of jobs, we limit people's access, opportunities to live a flourishing life, and we create need. So suddenly, we go from a society where, or an economic system, a social system, in which people uh, you know, are engaged in work, engaged in, in actually uh, self-achievement, prosperity, flourishing, where people are immigrating into the country and there's lots of jobs to a society where the state, in the name of helping us, the state creates massive unemployment, uh, institutionalizes people into poverty through the welfare system, and through this idea that they're needy and help tells them they... they don't get a job. Here's a check, which does horrible things to them. I mean, it violates the rights of the people we're taking money from. It limits their ability to, to, to go out and create wealth and create jobs and create a thriving economy. And, and, and therefore, economic growth is limited and everybody suffers from that. But then it also victimizes the people receiving the check because now they're never not going to get a job. They're disincentivized from getting a job. They're told psychologically they shouldn't get a job just become dependent on the government they'll never have pride they'll never have self-esteem and you've destroyed flourishing and human happiness so capitalism again is a system of freedom you can also say it's a system of human the pursuit of happiness it's a system of human flourishing and when you start limiting it in the name of a tiny fraction of a fraction of a percent who might need help then you destroy it for a large percentage of the population. I'd ultimately argue that this help that, so that the government is providing destroys human flourishing for the entire population. Now, what about that tiny little fraction that really needs help? I don't know, you're born with a, with a disease that doesn't allow you to work, or, or you're born with real problems, or, or, or an accident has happened in the middle of your life, you lose everything. I mean, there are lots of mechanisms by which that can be taken care of. There's family. The people are close to you, They're, they're friends who can help you, Th- that's how a lot of people were helped in the nineteenth century. Uh, there's also, you know, different types of insurance that parents can take out for their kids, you know, before they're born, that you know, in case they they are born with, with in such conditions that they can't take care of themselves. There is insurance you can buy while you're alive. Uh, you know, there's pri- there used to be private unemployment insurance. There used to be uh mutual aid societies there used to be all these private mechanisms to, to shield us from disaster that now have all gone away because innovation has gone away from this field so it's all all government right government has 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 uh, crowded out all the private solutions and then as a last resort there is charity and and people are people who are free i, I believe primarily from introspection are incredibly charitable and from people i know you know they're very charitable with their time, with their money, towards people who are basically good people who are unlucky or something bad has happened to not you know that's not no fault of their own. So that tiny fraction of the population that both is in such trouble that they can't take care of themselves and, and deserves taking care of, in the sense that they aren't they didn't cause the the the, the bad things to happen to them to them. Uh, they, you know, they will have multiple options. I I have no concern that their their lives will be taken care of.
0: I think you made an important point that I want to highlight for people, which is that when when you're asked, why is capitalism moral and what makes it a moral system, often people who say that they support free markets, the first thing that they start talking about is capitalism helps the poor poor and it leads to more abundant charity. And you agree with those statements but that that's not what makes the system moral what makes the system moral is that the the general case the normal case is a human being who needs to take certain actions to support his own life and make the most of his own life and it's that which capitalism is fundamentally concerned with protecting and it's because capitalism allows you to go out there follow your dreams make a million dollars or if your productive ability smaller make ten thousand dollars because it allows you to do that that is really the essence of what we should admire about the system.
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, and I think another way to think about it is capitalism rewards virtue. Virtue in the in, the, in the self-interested sense, in the rationally self-interested sense. So if you're rational, freedom, capitalism, you're rewarded for that. At whatever level of productivity you're at, you're rewarded for being a good thinker. It, productiveness right It rewards productiveness. The more productive you are the more likely you are to make money to be successful in whatever career you have whether it's a one that's very financially rewarding or not if you're just a great teacher, capitalism because in capitalism schools would be private, you're going to be rewarded for being a great teacher by your customers, your students, the parents that you know you're going to be advanced, you're going to advance. Uh, it rewards honesty if you really understand how business works honest businessmen are the ones who are successful long-term in real markets, not in the kind of cronyism that exists in some markets today. It rewards integrity, it, it, you know, it rewards independent thinking. Think Steve Jobs, right? You know, thinking of, of innovation, of something new. So it rewards, and, and, and it rewards being moral. So it rewards the essential virtues necessary for being a good person, for being a happy person, for, for human flourishing. It rewards all that, and that's fundamentally what makes it a moral system. It's, it, it's consistent, completely integrated with morality, and there's a reason for that, because the essence of capitalism is the rejection of coercion. It's a rejection of force. And it, the objectivist morality, the morality of rational self-interest, is a morality that depends on rationality. Rationality and force are enemies. So, you know, force destroys one's capacity to think. So a system that removes force... Is going to allow rationality to flourish, and therefore a system that removes force is going to allow rewarding uh, virtue, which is essential being essentially being rational. So, it's all kind of an integrated. If you understand Rand's philosophy and and the philosophy behind them, all foundations of capitalism, all these things are connected. They're all integrated. They're all fit beautifully together. Capitalism is moral. morality demands capitalism because morality demands the extraction of force from social relationships.
0: Well, I mean, so one thing that we hear that seems to challenge that picture is that economic mobility has kind of suffered in the United States. Um, people are not ending up, uh, people are basically stuck wherever their parents are and that compared to, say, with Europe, which has a much larger welfare state and much more government intervention, Europe actually has higher economic mobility. So how would you respond to that kind of objection? So
1: first of all, you know, these empirical uh, studies and these empirical uh, facts are are being abused, you know, to put it, I think, mildly, by particularly the left in order to advocate for this inequality thesis or, or, or mobility. So is mobility higher in the U.S. and Europe? I don't know, and and I don't, but I don't believe the studies coming out. For example, if if the inequality in Europe is lower, for example, in Sweden, then mobility between mobility between two uh, extremes, you know, uh, is not there's not a lot of there's not a lot of movement there, right? Uh, whereas in the United States, the gap between the poor and the rich is much bigger, and mobility requires bigger movement, but. All the measures, all the parameters are distorted. The way they measure inequality in Europe is very different than the way they measure inequality in the United States and all that. But the fundamental is this. You know, I don't know, but yeah, it's bad here and it's bad in Europe. And it's bad not because of inequality. It's bad because of statism. It's bad because um, people are restricted in their ability to create wealth. I'd say this is primarily true of, of... of poorer people, middle class people, uh, you know, th- y- you find a lot more wealthy people who are kind of entrenched in that wealth because they have rigged the system for their benefit through cronyism. But if you're poor and you want to start a career by shampooing hair, well in California they raise the cost on you by requiring a license. Or if you're poor and you want just to start any job so you can gain any kind of basic skills so that you can be productive and really successful in the future, well, the minimum wage caps who's going to hire you and and creates unemployment among among low-skilled workers, and therefore some people will never get a job because they never make it to producing seven bucks an hour in California today, 10 bucks an hour. So all this kind of restricts the ability of poor people to move up into middle class and maybe even to become rich. And it restricts all the regulations on on the that make it difficult to start a business in the United States. Make it very difficult for poor, middle class, rich people to start businesses and, and prosper. So the real problem is not income inequality, which, who cares? Uh, you know, and, and I can get to why who cares, what income inequality is. The real problem is, can one do what one what any individual believes is necessary for your own success, your own flourishing, your own, uh, you know, prosperity. And you're heavily, heavily restricted in the U.S. today and in Europe. So, you know, maybe mobility in, the, in, in Europe is better than the United States. But it, it's awful. You know, mobility should be a lot more dramatic. And indeed, mobility, rich dropping into poverty, poor people rising into rich, based on productiveness, based on the market, That kind of mobility maxed out, as far as I know, in the 19th century when people used to, you know, become very wealthy because they were incredibly productive and they could, you know, the limit was their dreams. They could start a business very easily. They could work hard and they could make a lot of money. But if you were rich and you were lazy, you inherited the money, you would lose it very quickly because you'd make lousy investment. There was no protection. So that kind of mobility based on... Uh, you know, based on virtue, is gone, eh, or, or gone to a large extent. And what we have today is way too much cronyism, way too much government control that limits us. And indeed, we've we, we started a talk in the United States about classes. Nobody talked about classes 50 years ago in the U.S. There was no such concept of class because everybody was moving. Everybody was trying to better themselves. But we've become a much more static Well, not because of capitalism. The opposite, because we moved away from capitalism. So if you care about mobility, that is the ability to improve yourself, uh, and and reward based on virtue, based on productiveness, then what you should advocate is more freedom, more capitalism, less regulations, and ultimately no regulations. What you should advocate for is laissez-faire capitalism. Yeah, I find it interesting, I mean, if you read what was—
0: being written during the time in America we're talking about late 19th early 20th century when if somebody was worried about mobility which is I'm poor and I want to become rich it was viewed as an individual issue you need to become uh you need to exercise certain virtues you need to work hard you need to save money you need to learn the skills um you you need to including the social skills to meet people who you might want to do business with and now it's treated as well if, if you're poor then that's a social problem, that's a government problem, and the the solution necessarily has to be the government's going to dump money in your lap. And so it seems that our whole way of thinking about the issue is wrong.
1: Yeah, I mean, we've moved from an individualistic way of thinking about the world to a collectivist way. So today wealth is viewed as society's wealth, and now we've got this big pie and how do we distribute it, right? Right. How, how much does each person take from this pie? Um, that's not how people thought about it in the early part of uh, in the nineteenth century, in the early part of the twentieth century. I mean, the concept of making money. If you read Alice Shrugged, you know this. Ayn Rand described it as a very American concept because people talked about making money right for themselves. They went out and created wealth. They they. Pre-19th century, the world was viewed as a zero-sum game, and in many respects, it was a zero-sum game. Capitalism allowed for this win-win situation where you literally created wealth out of nothing. And so it was it was about what you could do to make your life better, to improve your situation, how you could create money for you by working, by by providing a value. Today, Everything is collectivized. And this is this is why people today are concerned about inequality. In the 19th century, if somebody was richer than me, most people in America would say, that's great. That means he's worked hard. It means he's created values. My life is probably almost certainly better off because he's rich, because he's created values that I probably enjoyed. He built a railroad that I'm going to ride on. He's, he's, he's built a steel mill that provides steel for whatever business or whatever activity I'm involved in, or automobile or whatever. You know, today, I still feel that way. uh, Jeff Bezos is much richer than I am. Yay for Jeff Bezos. I mean, I enjoy using my uh, uh, Amazon, right? It's improved my life dramatically. So the fact that he's rich, he's rich because he's improved my life and hundreds of millions of people's lives dramatically. This is true of of most of the rich today, not all of them because, again, of cronyism, but of most of them. It's only when you think collectively we own the wealth, you didn't build it, you know, it's society somehow created all this stuff. Then you start being concerned about, ooh, he has more, that means I have less, because it's, we're going back to 17th, 16th, 15th century thinking about a zero-sum world, and as we destroy capitalism more, we indeed will be going back to more of a zero-sum world, because it's only capitalism that creates this win-win situation. Yeah, and again I want to stress that's a really interesting perspective
0: to have and I think it's a unique perspective that comes from Ayn ram which is usually when when you hear people who are generally supportive of the free market and they're trying to defend somebody having a lot of money, they say look at how many jobs he creates, look at how much, you know, taxes he pays to support the government, look how much charity he does. And again, you say, yeah, such a person is a benefit to all of us because they produce an enormous amount of wealth. But what makes it great is he produced an enormous amount of wealth. He got rich, and it didn't come at anybody's expense. It was a creation. It's as if you had a you know plot of land that wasn't doing anything for anybody, and he came along and planted something, and now there's something there that wasn't there before.
1: Absolutely, and, and to some extent, it's deeper than that because to the extent that by building that, he was pursuing his own rational values, then he was acting in his own rational self-interest. And only Ayn Rand can defend, or does defend, the idea of rational self-interest, the idea that people produce for themselves because they love it, because they enjoy it, because it brings them money, because it raises their standard of living, because it makes, you know, somebody like Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, it's not just about the money. You You watch them talk about their business. You can see they love this. It's great. Now, it's also about the money. Bill Gates lives in a beautiful home on, on the sounds of Seattle. You know, it's gorgeous. So it, it's a combination, but it's all about their values. And Ayn Rand is the only one to say, great, that's exactly what life should be about. And again, whatever level of productiveness you have, it's about your values. It's about making the most of your life. It, it's a, and that involves the, the joy and pleasure involved in production. And the, and the monetary reward that's involved in production. It's both of those things, and we all benefit from it. So there's no conflict between us, right? They're having, a, in, a, in a sense, a good time, right, in a deep sense of, of, a, of a productive, happy, successful life, and they're making my life good well at the same time. I mean, it, it, it really is win-win, all motivated by this pursuit of rational self-interest.
0: Well, then let's wrap up with this. What you just said, it sounds great on one hand, but on the other hand, that sounds selfish. It, sound, it, it You said it yourself, these people are after their own interests, even if it's not coming at other people's expense. And yet we've been taught that fundamentally what we should be doing as individuals and especially as a society is that we're serving the needs of others and that we're concerned with um, doing our duty towards others. And it's exactly that kind of view that leads people to think that the welfare state is morally mandatory. So you can can you talk about how can we say that capitalism is moral if what it's doing is enshrining self-interest and yet everything that we're taught about morality really seems to lead to the idea that we need a welfare state.
1: So yeah this is the fundamental point that I think only Ayn Rand makes and this is what makes Ayn Rand unique is that, is that who, it's not just that she's saying capitalism is moral. Other people try to say that as well and they use these it's good for everybody kind of ideas in order to justify it, It creates jobs, it it does all this. But what Ayn Rand is saying is that self-interest is moral, and therefore capitalism is moral. She begins with the idea that selfishness, self-interest, is the moral ideal. And that serving others as your moral mission in life, sacrificing for others, placing the well-being of others ahead of your own well-being, that to her is bad it's evil it's wrong so the point of life is to make your life the best life that it can be not to serve uh, you know other people now it turns out that in pursuing your own rational self-interest because you're going to be productive and and i encourage everybody to read the Virtue of Selfishness, Ayn Rand's book on this, or to read our book, Free Market Revolution, where we discuss this, or OPA, Objectivism the Philosophy of Ayn Rand, where Dr. Peacock discusses Ayn Rand's ethics. Y- y- this is something worth delving into and really studying and, and thinking about. But, but what Ayn Rand shows is that self-interest fundamentally is about reason, it's about thinking, it's about being rational, therefore being productive and being honest and having integrity and having being independent and so on. And that because it involves that, other people are better off for you being selfish as well. So it's exact opposite of, the, of a typical description of selfish. Selfish is not lying, stealing, cheating, stealing, uh, you know, backstabbing, being an SOB. Being selfish is about the rational pursuit of values. It's about being rational. And again, this requires a whole several books. Uh, to really, to really you know, delve into, it. and I encourage people to do it, because I think this is the most important issue. At the end of the day, if we're going to get to capitalism, we need to change the, the perception of morality that people have. We need to change their moral ideals. We need to reject the idea of self-sacrifice, of selflessness, and embrace rational self-interest or rational selfishness. And, and, and that's why Ayn Rand's philosophy is so important. So in free market revolution, the revolution we're really calling for is, yeah, we, we're calling for a revolution for capitalism. But to get there, what we need is a moral revolution. We need to reject selflessness and embrace selfishness.
0: Where can people learn more about your work and the Institute's work?
1: Well, the best place is on, on the website, Ayn Uh And, uh, you know, we have a blog there. You'll, you'll find a lot of articles. You'll find podcasts like this uh, on on the website. Uh, you can uh, follow me on Twitter. It's Yaron Brook. And uh, on Facebook, I think it's Brook. And, um, you know, sign up for the email list on, on the Ayn Rand Institute. We give... Don and I and, and and many others at the Institute give talks all over the country. Uh, we make a lot of public appearances, media appearances, and if you sign up for the mailing list, uh, you'll get notified about all those. All right. Thanks, Yaron. Thanks, Don.
0: So I want to highlight two key takeaways from this interview. The first is that capitalism is not today's system. It's a system where the government does only one thing. It protects our rights from being violated by force or by fraud. What we have today is a mixed economy. We have some freedom, and as Yaron talked about, a lot of government interference and control. So whenever we're evaluating some phenomenon in today's world, whether it be unemployment or economic growth or an economic crisis or a rise in innovation or a decline in economic mobility, it should be viewed as an open question, whether it was the free element of the mixture or the unfree element that's responsible. We can't assume that when something bad happens in the economy, it's capitalism's fault. But, I mean, we can't automatically assume it was a failure of government intervention either. We have to actually look at the evidence and arguments. And sometimes it can be a challenge to get the bottom of that question. And in those cases, we have to be honest and just say, I'm not sure. Second, whenever we're thinking about the morality of an economic system or an economic policy, we shouldn't think primarily in terms of groups, not the rich or the poor the middle class or the 1% or the 99%. We need to think in terms of what's good or bad for the individual. What's good or bad for the individual. And so morality is properly a guide for individuals. It's helping us figure out what will improve our lives and what will harm it. It's going to tell you things like it's better to think than to follow some authority or blindly do whatever you feel like doing in the moment. It's better to be productive than to mooch off of others or to loot off of others. It's better to deal with people through voluntary win-win relationships rather than harm or exploit them. Politically, then, a moral economic system is one in which you can follow that advice. It's going to be a system in which you're free to act on your own independent judgment, where you're free to create wealth and keep what you earn, where you can deal with others through voluntary relationships rather than a system where others can force you or where you have the power to force others. So when we turn to something like Social Security or Medicare, and we want to know whether these are moral programs, our first question shouldn't be, do they help the poor? Do they help the elderly? It should be, are they consistent with the principles each of us as individuals have to follow in order to flourish? So does Social Security leave us free to plan our retirement as we judge best for our lives? Or does it force us into a government retirement scheme regardless of what we think? Does Medicare allow us to keep the money we earn, or does it take our income and give it to others? Are these programs voluntary, or are we compelled to participate in them? Those are the kinds of questions that are, will allow us to reach a clear more moral evaluation of economic policies. So with that, it's time to bring this podcast to a close. To learn more, you can visit endthedebtdraft.com. And for the latest, I encourage you to like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash draft, and let the world know that it's time to put an end to entitlement exploitation. See you next time. Debt Dialogues is property of the Ayn Rand Institute. Its content is intended for private use only.